welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. I'm excited to let everyone know about the Doing the Work collection in partnership with Things Social Workers Say. We've got hoodies, tees, mugs, and tote bags. Now you can rep the podcast you love while you're doing the work. Check out the link in the show notes and head on over to the store. Thanks for supporting this work. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Armin Henderson from Miami, Florida. Armin is the Director of Health Programs at Dream Defenders, the founder of Dade County Street Response, and an internal medicine physician and assistant professor at the University of Miami. He talks about his community-based work in bringing medicine from out of the confines of the hospital setting directly to poor and working-class communities, with a variety of programs ranging from wellness checks and case management to stop-the-bleed gunshot wound trainings. Armin discusses how social determinants of health are rooted in racism and classism and social inequity. For example, he talks about how hurricanes in Miami are an environmental issue connected to climate change that intersects with racism and classism in terms of who is most impacted by hurricanes and do not have the resources to simply leave town when danger strikes. He explains how his team serves folks who are unhoused in a variety of ways, particularly during the COVID pandemic, which led to him being racially profiled and arrested in front of his home. Armin shares how he got into this work, which was directly connected to the murder of Trayvon Martin and connecting with Dream Defenders, who were formed at that time due to the killing of Trayvon. Armin saw a way to challenge racism and classism in medicine and organize for racial justice and medicine for the people using an abolitionist, anti-capitalist approach. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode's sponsor, the University of Tennessee Knoxville College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UTK has a phenomenal social work program with the opportunity to do your bachelor's, master's, and doctorate of social work online. Of course, they also have excellent classes in person in both Knoxville and Nashville. UTK is committed to preparing social workers who will support human potential and dignity and challenge racism and all forms of oppression. Scholarships are available. Go to www.csw.utk.edu to learn more. And now, the interview. Hey Armin, thanks so much for coming on, doing the work. Really excited to have this time with you. So just to get things started, maybe you can let us know a little bit about what you currently do. Yeah, so uh, I am, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a doctor in Miami, uh, but also I work as an organizer with Dream Defenders, and I have been uh, since I started residency uh, six or seven years ago. And uh, I also started a, um, a nonprofit that focuses on taking physicians out of the hospital um, outside of the hospital doors and putting them in the community, working uh, alongside poor and working class individuals. So tell us a little bit more about that with the um, the street response. Like, 
What does that look like when you're actually going out in the community? What are you doing? So the organization is called Dade County Street Response, uh, and we have different teams of uh, individuals um, that work and do specific things, but also work in concert of those things as well. So, for example, we have a disaster relief team um, that basically educates physicians and uh, and community members about the effects of environmental justice and climate change um, and how it interacts with with racism, uh, specifically in a place like Miami. Um, but also if a disaster does hit, then we organize physicians, medical students, and training physicians to respond uh, to vulnerable communities during disaster by setting up clinics and, and things of that nature as well. Um, and then we also have a street medicine team. Um, the street medicine team goes out and basically services the unsheltered population in Overtown, downtown Miami and Liberty City. Uh, we do wellness checks and basically case management, um, getting individuals access to the services and the brand of procedures that they may need, refilling medications and things of that nature. Um, and then we also have a... Um, a gun violence team, which teaches individuals how to bandage gunshot wounds in the in the community, uh, because a lot of people are saying that they that they are experiencing high levels of gun violence, uh, but weren't prepared to respond to it. A lot of people were seeing people getting shot and bleed in front of them, and they wanted to know how to respond. So we were teaching them the same methods that people in the military use, called stop the bleed. Um, we also have an advocacy team. Uh, and we're starting this alternative to 911 line, as you know. Yeah, you've got, you're doing a lot. And, you know, this is why I wanted to talk with you about what you're doing. So how did this kind of like come about for you? You know, were you here doing your residency and saw the need that was going on in the community? Is that kind of how this came about? Yeah, so when, when I first, uh, well, first of all, before I moved to Miami and knew I was coming here, um, I was following Dream Defenders and their work, specifically after the death of Trayvon Martin and watching the trial. And I, I was just, I was actually on some fancy internship uh, at a hospital. I had my, my master's in business association as well. And I was at some fa fancy hospital in Texas and, you know, basically teaching or showing them how to save the hospital millions of dollars. And I was, you know, I was on track to like, I wanted to be, thought I wanted to be a CEO of a hospital or something like that. And, uh, and then on the other side, I was watching this trial unfold and I was very upset about it. Um, not only because it was just fucked up what happened for lack of a better word, um, but also because I, I, I thought that I chose the wrong path. Like there was, I felt helpless and I didn't know any physicians um, or medical professionals, for that matter, who are really speaking up against us, and so I, I just felt like I, you know, betrayed my community. I'm from, I'm from a, you know, inner city neighborhood in Philadelphia, and uh, and yet all of my colleagues, all of the people that I was working with, really didn't know about, or or it acted like they didn't know about the struggles that were going on amongst everyday people, like it was above them. Um, and so when I when I found out I was coming to Miami. Um, and honestly, I thought I was going to Philadelphia, but I ended up coming to Miami. I was like, I got to connect with Dream Defenders. And so I was I connected with Dream Defenders as soon as I got to Miami. And then it was just like a listening project, you know, just 
figuring out, you know, how I can lend my my expertise. I was I was doing little campaigns that had nothing to do with healthcare, or I, what I thought had nothing to do with healthcare or medicine. And then, you know, two or two years in, I started to make connections to the social determinants of health and a lot of the campaign uh, and programming that Dream Defenders was doing, not just Dream Defenders, but also social justice organizations across the country. And I, I, and, you know, doctors and researchers and medical professionals do a lot of research around, you know, social determinants of health. Like we, we, we know them in and out, but we don't do shit about them. And so at that point I was just like, fuck it. I'm just gonna, you know, go ahead and, and do programs that directly um, impact social determinants of health. And I'm going to lead advocacy around those things as well. Lend my voice uh, when I can. And so that, that's really what, what led me to, to encourage other individuals in the medical professional to do so um, and to start Dade County Street Response. It's powerful. So watching the George Zimmerman trial, right? Did that, would you say that kind of like radicalized you a little bit? It radicalized me into, into you know, into feeling like I, I had to do more. But honestly, I was, I was, I was probably radicalized way before that, you know, in, in college, um, when, when I was just, just very upset around the way I grew up in a neighborhood and, and not really a, not really able being, being able to like put my finger on why all these things were happening to me, why I was a victim of gun violence, why I had, you know, guns in my face or why my community was so desecrated, why, you know, people in my neighborhood were suffering from, from lead poisoning or going to jail or their parents were on, you know, um, uh, addicted to cocaine and, and things of that nature. And, and I, 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 at first I just thought maybe I was just unlucky um, of, about the way that I grew up. Um, but then I started actually researching the systems and the systemic racism that has to do with those systems. Um, and so I would say at that point, it was just like, I, I can't do anything else. Like, yeah, I want to be a doctor and I wanted to, to help people, but I, I just felt like it wasn't enough. You know, it wasn't enough for me to become a doctor and then work in a hospital. Like it, I felt there was a calling for me to do something more. And, and that calling was, was to be an organizer with Dream Defenders and to, to, to radicalize other uh, medical professionals uh, to do the same. Yeah. I love it. I, I really do. Um, you just said so much there, you know, like when people grow up and the emphasis is on like the individual and there isn't that connection to like the way these systems function, you know, and you've made those connections and now you're putting alternative systems into place to address them. You know, what's the, like, what's kind of the bigger vision for you here and for this work? Uh, the vision is like um, advocacy through programming, like uh, putting forth and and advocating and encouraging local, state, and federal policy that focuses heavily on those most impacted. And that's whether it be through COVID-19, um, you know, in, in which I didn't know that we were going to have to respond to COVID-19, you know, when we did, which led me to, to being arrested. Um, but also uh, through resiliency, through environmental justice, um, through gun violence and, and, uh, and showing, showing people that there's, there's an alternative to, to the way that, that we've been told things should happen. Um, 
because it's one thing to say, oh, we should we should do these things. But it's another thing to actually put forth programs on a small level and then show how, you know, if I'm doing this with petty cash, you know, we're doing this with like little amounts of money. Imagine what, what others can do um, with the platforms that they have and and really encouraging people to do the right thing um, as a as a case for just humanity, like bringing the humanness uh, amongst poor and working class people. Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't be treating people this way. Um, and here's an alternative way uh, that we can go about doing things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go back to something you said, because I don't think you can just say that you got arrested without saying a little bit more about that. People are going to be like, wait, what? <laughs> For those who don't know about that story. Yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, this disaster relief team that we've had, we have a coalition of of networks that works together um, since Hurricane Irma, uh, where we found that the government basically, um, and and this is well known uh, from the National Advisory Council since Hurricane Katrina, um, you know, the same responses to disasters that individuals face in in poor and working class communities is is minimal in comparison to other well-to-do communities. Like literally, they they the, all the money and funding that these federal and 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 public organizations get, they usually only respond or respond the best to communities that really don't need it. Um, and so, because of that, we put this disaster network together to respond to people during hurricanes. But what had happened was when COVID nineteen hit, it was sort of similar, like a similar disaster in which we knew that poor working class and unsheltered people were going to be the most affected. Um, so, so the coalition that we already had built jumped, jumped into action and was responding to the unsheltered community in Miami-Dade County, which happens to be all black and brown men, um, majority of them. And so while we were doing that, we, we started like a 20, like a 12 hour shower site that was open every day for just for people to have access to testing, showers, washing their hands, clothing, toiletries, and things of that nature. We served hundreds of individuals every day. And uh, and through that, you know, we are, I always say, like, this is not some feel-good thing where people are just going to come and, like, oh, clap it up. We did a good job. It's like, no, this is fucked up. We shouldn't have to do this. This is the government's job. And so we were calling a press conference, basically, uh, with, like, 40 news organizations while we were giving out tents to individuals who were sleeping on the street because, you know, a lot of them were saying they have to walk miles to use the bathroom and, you know, business owners were saying, oh, people are shitting in front of my, in front of my store. And they weren't really understanding that uh, these, these unsheltered people were being shut out of everywhere else and they didn't have a place to go. Like it was like a third world country. Um, And so we were calling that out but also drawing connections to the fact that the one, the person, Ron Book, who owns, who runs, he does own, because you know he's, he's usurped the whole organization. He runs the Homeless Trust. He basically uh, is also one of the most powerful lobbyists in, in the state of Florida. And he's also the lobbyist for the largest prison group, Geo Group, in, in the country. And so, and so we, I thought, personally that this was a conflict of interest like how can you be you know for the best interest of individuals that usually end up in jail and getting all of their the care that they need basically in jail and you've been knocking these individuals up um so in call the, the day before the morning before i was supposed to go and speak at this press conference with dream defenders a police officer pulled in front of my house said i was lit- littering and then just put me in handcuffs 
Um, and that story basically spread around the world. Yeah, I saw the video and your wife had to come out, right, and show the officer that you actually lived there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it it, it was, it, yeah, my wife had to come out. She had to show the ID. He was really trying to escalate it. You know what happens when, when black people feel as though they've been wronged in front of the police as soon as you start acting out. Uh, you know, understandably so, you know, because who wants to be put in handcuffs in front of their house? Right. Then, then they they use that as a justification for use of force. So I already we already know, like the deal. So I, I was able to stay calm. But the interesting thing is that the police officer who uh, arrested me, he had twelve use of force complaints. He had twelve civilian complaints, and he was promoted. And it just shows the the type of um corruption that goes on in the police department, which is actually being called out today. Our new police chief, actually the police chief stepped down, you know, when we were calling out the corruption amongst the police chief, he stepped down. And now we have this new police chief that just came in from Houston. And he actually submitted a report to the DOJ saying that, you know, the police force, the the city of Miami is using, the commissioners are using the police force as, as, uh, as their own personal like army taking out vendettas on people. And so so it just makes sense why, you know, these these people who are creating these laws weaponized basically the police against me. Um and so full circle we're gonna have like this testimony around the criminalization of homelessness. And I'm gonna call that out specifically. Um but yeah, a lot has been going on around that politically. You know, you hit on so many issues in this work that all happened at the same time, right? You've got like police violence and the system that's behind that. You've got health inequity, systemic racism to kind of bring it back to the community level in our conversation. You know, what are, what do you see as some of the biggest issues that are facing, you know, the communities you're working in like Liberty city Overtown? I would say, um, all the things related to social determinants of health. So there are no, you know, access to to jobs that pay a livable wage. The housing is inadequate. The rent is too high. Mortgage prices are way too high. Um, Liberty City and Overtown just happen to be like the highest elevation outside of Miami Beach uh, within Miami. And so the majority of people living there are black and brown. And yet, the houses being sold there do not reflect the amount, uh, the income of individuals that live in those spaces. So they're being pushed out. So gentrification, climate gentrification, gen- regular gentrification, um, uh, you know, police violence, uh, racism, all those things together, um, environmental injustice. Uh, it's just so many things impacting um, the the individuals that that are living in, in the communities that that we serve, uh, there are not enough shelter beds. Um, it's too hot outside for individuals to be even sleeping outside uh, because the 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 weather is getting hotter over the years. Um, individuals don't have access to quality health care. Florida was a state that didn't expand Medicaid, and so poor people don't really get access to to the proper health care that they need. Um, so it's just it's so many things going on all at once. And they're all affecting people equally. And then on top of that, disasters make those things. Disasters are a threat multiplier on those things as well. So if a hurricane comes, it's like, oh, uh, I didn't have no money before. 
now I definitely can't leave. So now I got to stay and, you know, just bear out this hurricane, sometimes outside or without hurricane impact windows or with a roof that is, is about to, you know, blow off or, you know, so it's just so many things going on at once. Yeah. And the interventions need to happen at multiple levels. Like you were saying, like that work one-on-one with folks, but then also like the policy level. And I know one thing, I mean, you and I have started doing work together. So I just put that out there. Um, But one thing we've been talking about is like the response to these issues too have not always been what's been best for the community either. Right. Like we've talked about like the way that um, government has responded to community, to violence, for example, by increasing surveillance, increasing police force, um, and then how that then connects back to violence and, and to the health within a community. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, specifically with gun violence, I think the the main concern is that um, impacted folks are not leading the conversations. You know, it's it's people who who are able to woo local and state and federal governments who traditionally have been like white men who have access to the research and and the institutions who are leading the work and and they just don't they don't they don't know what's going on on the ground and so what we're calling for is for folks who are most impacted folks that are on the ground experiencing the trauma to lead the work and when you listen to those individuals they they say that since the police are one of the main causes of trauma in the community and are untrusted, then why would you put all the services in the police department? Um, and and I, I think that that's echoed not just here in Miami, but all across the country. Absolutely. And these police budgets, I mean, I was shocked when I learned the size of the police budget here. Um I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but I'm pretty it's sure like it's like a, a half a a half a billion dollars. It's a lot of money. Like the county alone, I think, was like over seven hundred million, right? Yeah. So how can folks who are listening, you know, get involved and support this work? I mean, there's gonna be people, you know, who are listening across the country, some folks who are international, you know, how can people if, if what you're saying is resonating with folks, you know, get connected or start doing this work where they are. Yeah, I mean, there's so many causes that individuals can take up. Um, and I, I would just say definitely get involved with people who are doing programming uh, for individuals who are most impacted. Um, so that could be a social justice organization. I mean, there's so many social justice organizations. I would also say you... You should also do your research. You know, a, a lot of these organizations are starting to pop up within the last year or so since the death of uh, George Floyd because they're monetizing it. It's a lot of money around it. But go with trusted, you know, organizations who are doing real work. Um, in particular, there are some national affiliates like the Poor People's Campaign and things of that nature, which I think really lead good work. Um, I would also say unions and, and those organizations that support working class uh, individuals are also very, very good organizations. Any tenant rights organizations, I would say, are good. Um, but I, I just would hazard just to make sure you're doing your research and that people are, are not just writing grants to get the funding and not actually doing the work. 
um, if you get involved with the organization that you see is is not really doing what what they say they're they're doing or 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 making the impact that you think they should, then you should definitely speak up about that and bring those concerns um, to the forefront as well. Um, and if you're in Miami, then definitely get uh, you know associated with Dream Defenders. I, I think moving forward, Dream Defenders is trying to figure out how to to bridge the gap between other you know organizations that that are national um, and and figure out how to how to take what we do on uh, on outside of Florida on a larger scale. So definitely look out for that as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say those things for sure. One of the things that we do with disaster actually is um, is if you know a disaster like Hurricane Ida hit Louisiana. And and so in order for us to really respond to people in Louisiana and Mississippi, we had to identify organizations that were trusted organizations on the ground for us to support. And I think in that same manner, you know, wherever you are, you got to do your research. Just don't, you know, just don't support any old organization. And also, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a good idea to actually start anything either, because there are so many organizations that are doing really good things. It's just a matter of doing your research. Yeah. And I know, I know we don't have a lot more time left, but I wanted to just put it out there to you, you know, since you are on this platform, is there anything else, you know, you'd want to use this opportunity to get into, to put out there? Um, I would say, um, I mean, I don't know, there's so much going on. Uh, I'm hoping to really start to engage with the United Nations soon. Um, I know this documentary is coming out on October 12th uh, that followed a lot of the work that we were doing here in Miami um, called Convergence. And that, that that's on October 12th on Netflix. And really what it looks at is like a breakdown of governments and society, not just here in Miami, but they follow someone in Iran and China um, and Brazil. Uh, and it really looks at how governments were also uh, failing individuals across the world. Um, and so these are not ideas that we're wrestling with that just affect us in the United States. These are these are things that poor and working class people are having to deal with across the world as well. Um, so being able to make those connections, I think is good. And, and watching the documentary might be a start. Yeah, for sure. And this will go live in November. So folks listening, you know, it's November or maybe they're going to listen even after that. So by then this will already be out and people can, can check it out. And, you know, one other thing I did want to ask you about before we go is just, it, it seems like there's been a growing, I, I don't want to say it's like new cause it's not new. It's been happening for a while, but there's been, um, a growing movement within medicine to address racism and to address systemic oppression, right? But there's also a lot of backlash to that that's still happening, right? I, I actually saw something like yesterday that was this, someone at Yale writing about, you know, the problems with critical race theory and medicine and how um, doctors should just be practicing best medicine, period. And it was like, how can you practice best medicine if you don't address racism? Yeah, uh, I'm actually supposed to be, I was supposed to be writing a book. Um that talks about that, not but not just racism. There's a there's a problem of racism in medicine, but and there's also a problem of class in medicine as well. A lot of the physicians that graduate med or a lot of the training 
medical students that graduate medical school, 80% of their parents are already doctors. So there's this growing sentiment that, you know, of these white, well-to-do, you know, doctors who are being graduated that are already, you know, of a certain class. And so they, they just don't worry about what's going on um, outside of that. And so one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing is also to change the minds of medical students as well. Uh, for example, the uh, on la- last weekend, we had a foot washing event where we were washing the feet of unsheltered people in Liberty City. And again, it, it was a it was a, a call to action as well, you know, um, because these are the people that that we're supposed to be serving, and 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 outside of that, you know, I'm teaching a class at University of Miami uh, around climate change and environmental racism, and drawing the connections there, uh, and and so it it just really takes for educators and physicians. Um, to be to be radical and, and I want to set the example because I don't really see a lot of positions that are really calling out the things that I am um, around race and class and things of that nature. Uh, the other thing that I think is important to, to mention is that there's a group of physicians, there, there's a divide in, amongst physicians right now. Uh, physicians 45 and over traditionally have become millionaires very easily. They could open up practices and things of that nature and they did very well for themselves. Those that are 40, 45 and under um, are in a massive amount of debt. And and that debt is so crushing and so bad that the suicide rates and the drug use amongst physicians is astronomical, way more than what it is amongst the general population. There's high burnout. Um, there is this, uh, this competition amongst nurse practitioners who are replacing a lot of physicians in many fields. And in a way, it's like, oh, these things are happening in a vacuum. But I'm like, no. This is what capitalism does. This is the corporatization of medicine, you know, and and the same way in which they keep out, you know, working class individuals from moving up. Now they're just doing it generally to physicians. Um, and so I'm calling for physicians to unionize um, and to identify with working class people. And the best way to do that is to teach about the history of working class people through the lens of racism. And so it really just is a, a dial a re a readjustment uh, a retraining of physicians' minds about why you know these things are important to talk about, um, and and I do it through this thing called social determinants of health in action, uh, which is bringing people to these events, and signing them up for programming, and saying, oh yeah yeah it felt good right yeah well let's let's really talk about why we're here and what this means in the grand scheme of things, and for the most part I think I've been really successful in doing that um, here in Miami, but I hope to to write about it and to, to spur a movement amongst where, uh, medical professionals across the country as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, like people need to know about the work you're doing. That's why I really wanted to get you on here. Um, I know you're really busy. And so even getting this little bit of your time was real important. I ask myself a lot, like how you actually find the time to sleep um, <laughs> <laughs> because I know you have so much going on and you have a lot of stuff going on that I don't know about, but I feel really um, fortunate that our paths have crossed and that we're, you know, working on some projects Same. together. Same. Um, just feel super like honored and finally feel like after all these years living in Miami, like I finally found my people, honestly, because it's been mm-hmm. a real challenge down here. Mm-hmm, uh, for sure. <laughs> um, so I wanted to just, again, thank you for coming on the podcast and thank you for doing the work in the community. 
No problem, man. Thank you for having me, and I'm looking forward to doing good work and to to uh, to bragging about it and and showing people that there's a, a different way. And look, look what we're doing over here. There's no excuses, you know. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.